This morning we're gonna we're gonna start a series um, called uh, the House of David. Now, if you've been around me for a long time, you know that I I have this um, this love for the books of First Samuel uh, Samuel and Kings, um, and particularly David. Now, I'm not gonna this series is not really about David himself, the individual, but rather the house of David. I'm um, in Hebrew, Beit David. Um, the house of David, the ruling house uh, of the kingdom of what became uh, the kingdom of Judah. Uh, and what we want to do is I want to kind of walk through this because this is the, you know, it's the part of the Bible where there's a lot of cool stories. There's David and Goliath and um, a lot of interesting imagery and things like that. Um, but there's there's also a lot of uh, intrigue. There's a lot of um, failure and, and redemption. There's There's... I think so much of the human experience embodied in this ruling family all descended from David. Now, David ultimately is the ancestor of Jesus. Um, Jesus is uh, descended from David probably both on Mary's side and on his adopted father uh, Joseph's side. Um, and so he lays claim to that lineage. Um, the house of David plays a key part in most of the Old Testament and, and huge chunks of the New Testament. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul will begin the book of Romans talking about how Jesus was declared to be the son of, of David, son of man, the son of David, according to the flesh, and the son of God, according uh, to the resurrection. Um, and so we, it's, it's incredibly important that we understand David um, and, and the house of David, but also it makes a lot of the pieces of the Old Testament fall into place if you know about this family. If you don't know about this family, um, then some things, some passages of Scripture just don't make any sense. You get moments like the prophets talking about the, the, the root of Jesse um, and, and kind of things like that. And you're going, what, what are we talking about? But if we know this family, uh, Scripture makes a lot more sense. So uh, I want to very briefly, I put a, in the bulletin, I put a, a, some information about the, the David in history. Um, and um, I want to I wanna put up, Tom, if you can put up that picture uh, of the, the Tel Don Stella. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, so uh, one of the big things that was discussed for a long time amongst historians was whether David ever actually existed. Um, because his story is just too good. Um, and now we're going to talk about it, but basically the story of a shepherd who becomes a king, who becomes a songwriter, I mean, who, who um, is then becomes the ancestor of Jesus. It just seems like the story is, it, it, you know, interpreters are like, this is just too convenient. This can't really be historical. And, and they argue that, well, there's no way we know the history of David because people weren't writing books back then. So, so how on earth um, could they have known the details about the life of this guy? Um, and then in the middle 20th century, they were excavating a site in northern Israel um, in the Golan Heights, almost to, uh, to Syria, uh, that's called Tel Dan. Tel is a, uh, Arabic, it means the, the mound, all right? A tel is a mound where cities had been. Um, and in one, of the, in, in one of the areas, they found this paved area um, where it had been paved with stones. And one of the paving stones, you can see this is actually broken, but one of the paving stones was inscribed in what's, what's called a, a Northwest Semitic script. Um, it's, 
in uh, Aramaic, actually. It's not in Hebrew, but it's a related language. And if you can see, there's a little section that is kind of marked in white, and um, it's kind of down a little bit low there. Um, that is actually the term Beit Dawid, the house of David. Um, and this dates from around the 8th century BC. Now, it wasn't found in archaeology. We say it wasn't found in situ. Um, it wasn't found in the actual place that this had been set up. But at one point, this was a part of a stela, um, kind of a rounded uh, structure. would have been about as tall as I am. And it would have been inscribed uh, with a whole record. Um, and this, this pushed our knowledge of the house of David to within a couple centuries uh, of the time that David would have lived. And so we know from this um, from the Misha stela, which is a, another stela that I'm not going to put the picture up in, um, and, and several other locations, we can actually be very confident that there was a ruling house called the House of David. And if there was a ruling house called the House of David, it follows that there was a David. All right? Um, that sounds deep, doesn't it? Um, you know, if there's a house named after the guy, uh, the odds are the guy existed. And then what we have in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings in your Bibles um, is really the history of the house of David. Now, sprinkled inside that narrative, there are bits and pieces about the northern kingdom of Israel, um, which is ruled by a house called Beit Omri, the house of Omri. Um, we, we won't talk about them too much, but they're kind of a... a distant cousins kind of a situation they were one kingdom and then they were split up then they were together then they were split up um but um and that kingdom was actually the the primary focus uh of of my doctoral dissertation but um but the southern kingdom is really the one that's important to us david in first and second samuel david lays claim to the right to rule the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, based on four things. Now we're going to get to the, the text here. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 16, but I just want to give you this um, so that you're aware of it. There are four reasons that First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings claim that the house of David should rule. Uh, the first one is that they're the descendants of the kingdom of, or the, uh, the tribe of Judah. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, um, Israel, all right, or Jacob, is speaking to his sons, and he says that Judah, um, the scepter, will never part from, uh, from between his legs, like standing there holding the scepter, that he's going to rule the kingdom uh, or the people of Israel, the descendants of Israel, the sons of Israel. So first he's the descendant of Judah, and, and the book of Ruth talks a little bit about that. The second reason that he claims, uh, legitimizes his rule, claims the, the power to rule the Hebrews, is actually going to be the passage we read here, 1 Samuel 16. He's anointed by the prophet of God, Samuel. Um, and the anointed one is the word we get Messiah from, uh, Meshach. Um, it is, it's someone who has been, had oil poured over their heads. So he's anointed by the prophet of God. The third reason um, is the story that you all are very familiar with, I have no doubt, um, the story of David and Goliath. Um, so the first one is David is right to rule by lineage, by his, his family. The second is his right to rule by prophetic voice. 
um, that Samuel says God has chosen him as the anointed. The third is that he defeats Goliath, so he has what's called a martial right. Um, not martial as in, um, you know, arrested and ra- cattle wranglers, um, but martial, M-A-R-T-I-A-L, uh, war. By right of war, David is meant to be the king. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that passage in another time. And then the fourth reason, and perhaps the most important, is that the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Israel and Judah, acclaim David to be king. They recognize his lineage, the prophetic voice, his martial right, and they actually declare him to be king in the book of 2 Samuel. So David becomes the the really the linchpin of the history of the Hebrew people as we have it in the Old Testament. And first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, they present to us the lineage of David. Who ruled? Why do they rule? Do they when they rule well and when they rule badly, all of that is recorded for us. One of the most extraordinary things about David is he's one of the few people we have from this time period where the record, the historical record, what we have in the Bible, presents him in all of his glorious dysfunction. Now, now most people, if you ever read any history about, about this time period, what's called the Iron Age II, um, you read these records of these kings, everything they write about themselves, they are the greatest person ever. They never made a mistake. They never retreated from warfare. The Egyptians are particularly good at always presenting themselves as victorious even when they lose Um, everybody wants this propaganda value of showing how powerful they are what we get in David is some extraordinary depth to his personality we see him fail we see him fall we see him struggle we see him in moments where he's begging God not to, not to bring the punishment that he knows he deserves. And you just never see that um, in the rest of the histories. And it's extraordinary to me um, that, that this, was, this was written to us to present us with this person in so many dimensions. So what we want to do today is I want to look at the moment, the first moment, when David enters the stage. So the founder of House of David, we know that ultimately, from our point of view, we know ultimately he's the ancestor of Jesus, all of those things. But for our purposes, I want you to try to clear all that out of your mind and read this. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I want to give you just a short breakdown of this. The Hebrew people have been living in the land for a few centuries They've been a very loose confederacy of people that speak the same language and they get together every once in a while to deal with an enemy, but there's nothing big. And then about 40 years prior, actually probably about 10 years prior to this, um, they had finally gotten themselves a king, a a champion, a warrior, and his name is Saul, Saul the son of Kish. Um, He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, He is a piece of work. Um, He is tall, handsome, and dumb. Um, He is is basically Barbie's Ken. I mean, that is who he is. Uh, Everybody loves him. They think he's wonderful, but he just is a terrible manager of things. Now, he gets some victories and things, but he's also a bit of a coward. 
Whenever he's not completely sure that things are going to go his way, Saul is always trying to manipulate the situation. And he pulls a stunt where God had told him through Samuel that he was supposed to conquer a particular people and wipe them completely out. But Saul uh, decided that what he would do is he would keep some of those resources for himself. He gets called on the carpet. He makes excuses like he's a four-year-old. All right. At one point, uh, Samuel says to him, hey, I hear sheep bleeding. I thought I told you to kill all the sheep. And he goes, oh, that was somebody else brought those sheep. I don't know, I don't know why those sheep are there. There's no, and you just see him just kind of pushing like a sheep behind his back. Like, like I don't know what's going on. And Samuel tells him that the kingdom's going to be taken out of his hands. And 1 Samuel 16 and, and uh, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve or, or pine? The, the Hebrew word is avel. It means to, to weep over someone, to long for them. How long are you going to grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now, <laughs> he is pining for this guy and yet he's terrified of him all right you see this is already a very toxic situation uh, how can i go if saul hears it he will kill me the lord said take a heifer with you and say i've come to sacrifice the lord invite jesse to the sacrifice that's david's father invite jesse to the sacrifice and i will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom i declare to you and Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab. All right, This is Jesse's oldest son. Um, he looked at Eliab and said, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed before, is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Samuel said, uh, or God said, uh, Samuel said, he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord's not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? You'd think he would have led with that question. He said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for he will not, we will not sit down till he comes here. We are not eating until David is with us. And uh, Jesse's eyeing that, that side of beef that's being roasted. And he sent and brought him in. He said, now he, David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. 
Now, just real quick, this depiction of David, I want you to see what David is. David is a, a young man in the vibrance of his youth. He is strong. He is probably late teens, early 20s. Um, he rules for 40 years, so, so he's not that old um, in this moment. But he's actually, we find out in the next chapter later on, that he's actually taken on lions and bears. Um, oh, my. Uh, and he is, he's, uh, he's, he's particularly, he seems to be an actually a pretty substantial guy. At one point, he, he takes Goliath. Now, Goliath's a giant. He's 9, 10 feet tall. David will take Goliath's sword as his own personal sword. So David is no weakling. And you see him in the family Bibles, this little scrawny, little wimpy looking guy in a white robe. You know, it's like anybody that's dealt with sheep knows that you don't wear white when you're dealing with sheep. Um, but, but, you know, he's barefoot, wearing little sandals, and, and he's, his hair is perfectly coiffed. Um, odds are that when David shows up at this, at this moment, he's probably, he's been out t- tending the sheep. He's probably dirty. He's probably washed his hands quickly. It's probably a mess. He's, he's got a, um, depictions you never see. David's probably got a, a beard. Um, you never, he's always this clean-shaven person because that's a high priority when you're watching, watching, watching sheep is that you shave every day. Um, but in fact, if you, you see that phrase, it says he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes. I mean, I mean, that's what Samuel sees about him. He sees his eyes. He sees he's strong. He sees he's handsome and he's going to be the anointed. And, and this is going to set us down a road. David is going to become, um, really important, but I, I, I want, I want to actually, I want to look at this and, and I want to look at this from a human point of view. And, and look at the individuals who are trying, in this period of transition, they're trying to understand what God is going to do. Because I think that's, that's really where we want to kind of camp a little bit. We're, we, we always find ourselves in these situations where we're kind of looking around saying, okay, God, what are you going to do? A, a door has been closed or uh, a relationship has ended or, or we're in a difficult transition and we're saying, God, what are we going to do? And I don't know about you, but I tend to um, come to several wrong conclusions before I finally find the right one, right? Um, and so I want to look at some of the people that are involved here and, uh, and talk about their issue in this time of transition. Let's look at Samuel first. The Lord said to Samuel, verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king? Um, and then Samuel has this interchange about Saul's going to kill me and all this stuff. And so Samuel knows that God has, is replacing Saul, and yet he still, he, he loves Saul. He's, he's worked with Saul for a while. He's, he's trained him. He's, he's seen God use him, and yet Saul is making mistakes. And, and, and you get the feeling with Samuel that, that as he's looking at this transition period, his decision-making is kind of being guided by, by his desire to preserve what is already gone. His, his longing for the nostalgia, the, the glory days of Saul's reign. That, oh man, I, can't, I don't want to end this because think about how great it was when Saul was on his game. Uh, um, you know, I, I think of, and this is not a direct analogy, but I think of watching, and some of you are too young to even know who this person is, but watching Joe Montana play in Kansas City. One of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the NFL won Super Bowls with the San Francisco 49ers, but he wasn't ready to stop playing. And so he went to Kansas City 
and he was just a shadow of himself. He, he just, but everybody look, everybody still, I mean, Kansas City was selling out games. I was in Kansas City this weekend. The, the sweet joy of the, the pain of them losing Thursday night's game. I was there Thursday night. It was, it was like the whole city was crying and I was, I was happy. Um, but the, uh, but the, the Kansas City back then, Kansas City was nowhere. Nobody wanted to play in Kansas City. And when Joe Montana went, people paid uh, a lot of money um, to go see the great Joe Montana be a shadow of what he once was. And, and Saul, uh, Samuel has this nostalgic longing for the old days when Saul was, was young and humble and He's not ready to let go. He's still pining. He's still grieving over Saul and Saul's mistakes. And it's very easy to see how that can get in our way in a period of transition when God is moving us somewhere different or doing something different in our lives. And, and there's, it's really, really hard for us to not live in the past, to not want to try to get back what we've all lost. Um, now, how many of you have been married more than uh, 20 years? Okay. How many of you have been um, happily married all 20 of those years? Don't raise your hand. No. <laughs> if you have been married more than 20 years, I think you would all agree with me that your marriage has had different stages. It has grown. It has been challenged. You have faced difficulties. And... Probably at one point, you, you, maybe you hit a really, really difficult time in your marriage. You weren't sure whether this, this was going to work. And one or both of you tried to reclaim what had happened in the past, and then you realized you're not married to the person that existed in the past. You're married in the person that exists today. And you have to, you have to find a new way forward. There's a lot that still comes forward with you, but, but you find a different road. When your kids go to college and you finally are, are presented with having to live with this person without your kids, um, or you are, you, you are put in a difficult financial situation and you have to give up the, the dream home or, or the dream car or whatever, and you have to downsize and do something different, or, or there's a, and you find that there's another stage. Now, how many of you have been married more than 40 years? Okay. You can all look at the ones that have been only married around 20 years and say to them, you, it hasn't even started yet. Right? And, and, and all relationships are like that. They grow, they mature, they change. But Samuel, he's trapped with the nostalgia. He's trapped um, with the past. He doesn't want to move forward, and yet God pushes him. Uh, the second group of people in this transition time that I want you to look at are the elders in the city of uh, or the, the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem's probably only about three or 400 people if it's even that big. So, so get out of your mind the idea that it's some kind of met, metroplex. All right, it's just a, 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 about 300 cousins living together. That's really what it is. And um, it's on the border of Judah and Benjamin. And Samuel comes to the cities and look verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling. And what do they say to him? Have you come peaceably? Now, I haven't gotten into this, but when Saul failed to kill the king of the Amalekites um, in the previous chapters, Saul, Samuel took a sword and cut the guy in half, the king that Saul was supposed to kill. 
The elders here have good reason to be afraid when Samuel shows up. Samuel is a terrifying figure. He can call down fire. He, he, is, um, he is the voice of God. He's been the judge, the priest, and the, and, and, uh, and the prophet of Israel for almost his entire life. He looms large. And Bethlehem is a little town that controls the only real consistent water supply on the border of Judah and Benjamin, kind of this little hill border. And they live in the shadow of Moriah, the city that today Jerusalem is on, but at the time was ruled by a Canaanite group called the Jebusites. And they are this border town between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe. So the elders are sitting there going, they see Samuel coming down the road, and they're like, oh no. He is, I, and so they say to him, are you coming peaceably? Are you coming to bring peace or do we just need to like clear out? And the problem, the, their issue, they're terrified in this moment. They are, they are in this period of transition in a time of anxiety and fear. Now, Samuel doesn't want to let go of the past. But the elders of Bethlehem, they're terrified of the future. And you know what? Both of those things will paralyze you from doing what God wants you to do. If you are constantly obsessed with trying to uh, uh, rediscover the past and, and re, I want to I have the, the thing that we lost, the heyday, the moment, you're, you live in the past, you're never going to get to the future. But if you're constantly living on the potential futures... Well, if I do this, then that will happen, then this will happen. I know none of you ever think like this. This never happens. All right? But you start weighing all the choices and all those things and, and playing um, that game. Now, all right, so we go, we talked about the 20-year-olds. We talk about people who have only been married for a couple of years or just going to get married or something like that. And you're always waiting for the perfect moment to do whatever that transitional thing is. Well, we just have to have this in place before we have a house. We just have to have this in place before we get married. We just have to have this in place before we have kids. We're constantly trying to control the variables. And you know what? Every single person that said, when the world is perfect, we will have children, managed to have children when the world was not perfect. Um, You're never going to get that perfect scenario, but it's very easy to be paralyzed by the anxiety and fear of what's going to happen next. The terror of, will this work out? Um, You know, I I can think of a million scenarios in which this doesn't work out and life gets worse for me. And that's where the elders are. Samuel's Samuel's in the past. He's pining over Saul. The elders see Samuel coming and they're terrified. But then we get um, Jesse. And Jesse makes the choice to bring his seven oldest sons to the feast. Now, did Samuel say, bring your oldest sons? Samuel says, bring all the boys. And Jesse goes, well, now I'm going to tell you this. I think that Jesse, the reason Jesse keeps David in the field is because David is the uh, responsible one. We find out later that the other brothers are not that bright. 
Um, and they, they have trouble with things and they, they pick on David because David, like Joseph before him in the book of Genesis, David seems to have a good head on his shoulders. He's stable. He, he, um, he, he seems to have a, a balanced approach to life. He has realistic expectations for himself and others. And, and so probably Jesse said, well, we got to go to this feast. And if Samuel lobs off all of our heads, uh, who am I going to leave in charge? I think I'll leave David in charge. So I'm going to put David out. David, you go take care of the sheep while your brothers and I, we all go to this party. Now, what's interesting is David seems more than happy to let that happen, right? David probably doesn't like his brothers very much. So, so David's off in the field. And so then Jesse, the, the, they, Jesse brings the sons and, and we have this moment, this, this procession through the seven sons. Because... Um, Jesse thinks, well, David certainly can't be the king, right? I mean, if Samuel's here to ordain a new king, if he's here to appoint a king, it's got to be one of my big, strong, strapping, older sons, my warrior sons, my sons who have probably fought in battles with the Philistines. Um, they, they're experienced. They know what they're doing. They, some of them are married. They have children. So, you know, David, he's dispensable, and so Jesse, when he looks at what God is doing, he kind of decides to make his choices based on external things, expectations, and, and the norms. What's the normal thing to do? I, I, there should be a pattern here for this. There should be a plan. Somebody's already done this successfully, so I just have to go find... Now, they had done this before. Uh, Samuel, Saul had brothers. Saul was chosen. So Jesse's kind of looking at that and saying, well, this is the norm. This is what's expected as a king. Well-intentioned, all three, Samuel, the elders, and Jesse, were not open to what God was going to do in this moment. They, they had narrowed the scope of what God could do to the boundaries of their perspective on the situation. And if we're not careful, if we're not open to the fact that God is a supernatural God who sometimes does things that make no sense to us, sometimes moves us to make decisions that maybe we can't see the the logic of it right here and right now, but in hindsight we look back and say, wow, God was in control there. The house of David in Bethlehem, when David is anointed, there was no reason, no precedent, no expectation for this to work. And yet God had a plan that was going to set the history of Israel on the line to eventually bring about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it may not have fit the human expectations. And only in hindsight could people look back and say that was what God wanted, that clearly was his will. And yet, and yet, when it was revealed, who goes along with it? Now this is an important 
question. Samuel, the one that introduced with the nostalgia and the guilt and all that stuff, looking to the past, when God finally says, this is the one. In fact, David comes around a corner and Samuel goes, oh, he's the one. All of the human limitations pass away. And actually that last line, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Samuel retires. This is where he will die in Ramah. Samuel has seen David. He has seen God's anointed. He has accepted what God is doing. And he's willing to let God be at work. Now, you can apply this however you want in your life. But in these times of transition, yes, we have to do our due diligence. But what should be the ultimate arbiter of the decisions we make? The Word and Spirit of God. And if, it, if He calls us to act in a way that is out of our comfort zone... We have only one responsibility, to obey. Did Samuel want to anoint David? No. He wanted Saul back. Was Samuel willing to hear the voice of God when God spoke? Yes. And that's all we can do in transitions, in time periods. That's all we can do is conform to the will of God and believe that he will do what he will do. And join me in a word of prayer. Father, every church is composed of people, some in early transitions, late transitions, mid-transitions, we're always either looking forward to or coming out of. Life is change. Help us to know your will, to dig into your word, know your truth, ask the right questions, set aside both our, our anxieties and our guilt and our fears and our expectations to do what you've called us to do. We pray for the strength to be able to do that as parents, as grandparents, as children, as husbands, wives, every stage of life. Not just that you would be glorified in those around us, but you would be glorified in the choices we make when we know that you have called us to act. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace. Uh, we'll have ministry leaders meeting.